This episode of Exploration Radio contains language that may be offensive to some listeners. I just think the greatest way to experience life, well, what I said to one of our daughters once when, you know, she invited me to a school carnival and she said, you know, Mum, come to my school carnival. Off I went to the high school sports carnival and she went in one event. And I said, what a bloody waste of my day. I said, here I am, I've taken a day off work to come and watch you at the school carnival. You know, you're 13, you're old enough to be responsible and all you do is one event so you can have the day off school. I said, in life you're either a passenger or you're a driver. And I said, so if you want to keep being a passenger, keep just doing the shit that you're doing, but if you want to be a driver, then embrace things and, and participate. So she said, okay, the, the next day she came to me after thinking overnight, night, said, okay, mum, I've decided. Next year for school carnival, I'm going to go in absolutely everything and I'm going to get champion girl. I said, oh, really? So, well, you know, just be careful that, you know, you don't, you don't shoot too high. Um, but, you know, as a credit to us, bloody kid goes to the school carnival next year, goes in every event, has never done athletics in her life, breaks the, never thrown a discus in her life, breaks the school record for discus, um, wins virtually every event but bar a couple and takes out the school um, champion girl, you know, the champion girl for her age group. And I thought, oh, well, there you go, good advice. That story perfectly sums up our guest this week, Peter Libby. She's incredibly honest and wholly authentic, wears a heart on her sleeve and shoots from the hip. Despite all the challenges and setbacks this industry has thrown at her, Peter has managed to succeed on her own terms. In our industry, change is inevitable. Maybe the cure for it is adaptability. Welcome to Expression Radio. Our guest today is Peter Libby. So can you introduce yourself and tell our listeners about your background? Okay, so I'm Peter Libby. I am a, well, first and foremost, a wife, a mum, a grandma, and um, but geology blows my hair back, basically. So I'm also a geologist with, sort of graduated from UWA in 1990, so I'm a WA girl, born and bred, um, and I run a, an exploration contracting consulting business called DigiRock. I discovered from a very young age that... Um, I love rocks. I um, I remember a very distinct time. I was brought up in the hills in an orchard, and I remember we were in a, a, a the Lions Park on um, up in Stoneville, on just on the corner of Riley Road and Stoneville Road, I think. And there was a um, a little park, and all the kids, all my friends, were playing on the swings. They're saying, "Pete, come over and play with us." They're saying, "No, no, no." I'm putting my hand in the clay so I can make a, by the creek there, so I can make a fossil so that in two million years' time people know I was here and I was only about five or six. So, and it's always fascinated me ever since. And at my 40th birthday, my dad said that someone asked me when I was about eight years old, what do you want to do when you grow up? And I said, I want to own a rock shop. Do you collect minerals or anything? Oh, God, you should see our upstairs mezzanine outside our bedroom. It's just full of rocks. We've got, because... um. There's sort of three geolo- three generations of geos in our family. And so we've got all of my father-in-law's rock collection from sort of type examples from around the globe that he collected. And it is his, and we've got a geology library with his texts, some first editions as well. Um, and then John and I travel, whenever we travel anywhere, we make sure it's got a geological flavour to it. So Iceland and we bring back, you know, volcanic bombs oh, from wow. Iceland. And so we've got examples and we go to Hawaii and we've got, um, you know, mantle xenoliths from Hawaii and all these, you know, olivine crystals and everything that we've got in the collection. And yeah, so it's great. I love it. Oh, let me get this right. You're the Outstanding Woman and Resources winner for 2018. Tell us about that recognition. Well, it's really interesting. You know, I suppose... I wasn't expecting, although I was a finalist, I wasn't expecting to win. So it was a real surprise and I didn't anticipate how um, emotional I'd feel about it and how much it actually meant to me. And I suppose I've been giving a bit of thought over the last few weeks, What, why did it mean so much? And I suppose when you're your own boss like I am in the business, the only person I've got to answer to is my other director, who's my husband, um, then, you know, what we all seek, I suppose, when we work is the... Um, I don't know, the recognition of our peers that we're doing a good job. You know, it's important that we get positive feedback to maintain our rage, I suppose. And I suppose for someone like myself, who's my own boss, that's one of the ways you can only get it from your industry and from your clients. And I suppose that's ended up what it was, is a bit of positive acknowledgement from my bosses, basically. So it means a lot. And it meant a lot for me, you know, I suppose because 
you know, it was tough when I first left university because, you know, I was pregnant when I left uni and to, to stay in the industry. Um, it meant a lot because the kids have been dragged backwards through the industry, you know, through their lives. And, you know, we all came out the other end successfully and with something positive. So it meant a lot to myself and my family as well. Do you think the award was validation for a lot of stuff that you've done during your career as well? It's it's funny, possibly, but, you know, you're no different a person the day after the award as you were the day before. So um, That's a good point. So, you know, you're still the same person, but it just reminds you that the things that you have an inherent drive to do um, – people value so and that's a really that's a that's a great acknowledgement that things that you value look other people value as well so that's that's what's nice about it so i i wasn't there that night but i was i was at the mining club a few days later and i saw the response from that audience and you weren't even the, the speaker you you just got pointed out left right and center you know there's it must feel good yeah, look, it was, sadly, I had raced out to the loo when <laughs> I was acknowledged at the, the second time by the main speaker. That old chestnut. Yeah, that old yeah. chestnut. And so I had to apologise to him afterwards. I said, I'm so sorry. Thanks for the acknowledgement. Um, but, but yeah, it was. I, I felt almost embarrassed because, you know, you always feel that you're not deserving of it. And so when you're brought to, you know, to notice in public like that, you get a little bit embarrassed by it. But um, but it is lovely because the mining club is a really interesting mix of people, and of course it's um, it's dominantly men. So it's nice to be recognised in a very male environment that I've never ever felt that I was a female in. I only ever felt like I was a geologist in. But it's nice that other people just see you as a person in the industry as well. So the main conversation point for today, to me at least, and we'll see where the conversation goes, is to talk about balancing careers and family I've always been I've always found it fascinating how first of all you tell stories but secondly how you actually manage to do this and you, you already touched on this bringing your kids up both you and John are both reputable geologists in your own right how you've balanced the whole family life etc in our industry which is cyclical we all go through retrenchments we've had this conversation in fact this week's podcast is about why do geologists lose their job? And that's something we've all been through mm-hmm. and will continue to go through. So um, tell us a little bit about being pregnant and leaving uni and still trying to be an explorer. Well, it was it was tough because I, although I always had the academic ability to be a geologist, I was a particularly naughty student so I wasn't wasn't the best attender um, and I paid for that in my marks um, I met my husband at uni so we enjoyed being together as a as a couple and did a lot of partying so I probably you enjoyed the uni life I enjoyed sad, the yeah. uni life and you could back then because it was it was a very egalitarian society back then when we had yeah. free university education you know um, so things have changed for university students now but I do remember you know I was sort of seven months pregnant when I finished and thinking well you know John's on a PhD scholarship we've got to feed the family somehow I've got to get out and get myself a job um, and baby hadn't been born yet so I remember stumbling through West Perth in my little maternity frock that my mother-in-law had made for me because we couldn't afford maternity clothes and um I was on um, Parliament Place there somewhere and I walked up some steps and I tripped up. I was, had been walking around West Perth with my CV trying to find a job and I tripped up these stairs and I just sat there and I sobbed because it was about 35 degrees. I'd been walking for three days looking for work and no one had anything for me. And this kind man in his business suit came up to me and he said, are you okay? And I said, no, <laughs> I'm seven months pregnant. I've just finished university. I'm a geologist and no one wants to give me a job. <laughs> But, of course, people are in this world, you know, 99.9% of people are lovely and, you know, they pick you up and get you on your feet again. Um, So, yeah, so it was nice that that man sort of, you know, spurred me on a bit. And then, of course, my old boss rang me and said, here, I've got a job for you. Um, Come and help us set up our office in Perth. So I did that. And, of course, um, tragically, I went into labour in front of him. My water's broke in front of him um, (laughs) when I was telling him that I didn't think I'd be at the office the next day because I thought I was in labour. So that was a bit of a joke. He's had two of his female geologists do that to him in the business. So I wasn't the first <laughs> so he's, he's perfectly used to it um so yeah nothing unusual for them but yeah I mean I suppose for us um we really just had to knuckle down and you know do what we could to to make a crust and and to get through and um 
And, you know, we ended up, uh, I suppose John had met for his PhD and said, well, I've got to go out in the field for three months. Um, so you later. I said, no way, mate, you're not leaving me behind with a newborn baby, six weeks old, a dog, a cat and a house to, you know, to clean and everything. I said, I'm coming with you. <laughs> so we left the cat behind for my mother-in-law to feed and um, we took off with the baby in a baby capsule on the dog and a rifle for three months in a swags and um, a big um, trailer full of uh, I suppose you call them bulk boxes of disposable nappies and a playpen, and off we went and hit the road for three months. Used to shoot room meat for the dog, and um, oh, the baby wow. would sleep in the car and the baby capsure with the dog, and John and I being the swag, and we had a great time. So, so where, no. where was it, where was this? So we went. We started out, um, went up through Coolyanobbing, sort of uh, Mount Jackson, Dimals, a lot of time around Sandstone, and then up the back road um, past uh, Yuliwi Station, Cashmere Downs up to Waluna, out east of Waluna to Lake Violet Station, down the back through Barwidgee and um, and then down the back way from Barwidgee into Leinster, which is a story in amongst itself, getting stuck in an aerial muster with a baby screaming in the back and the dog barking at all the other dogs when we were being bombarded, when we were being swooped by a by a, an aerial mustering plane. Um, and then we ended up, uh, went down to Leonora, went east of Leonora and then down to Cal, out to Coroni. Um, and I think John was visiting a site south of Caroni. One of the girls said, oh, there's a really great opal mine down there. So someone took us down there and she said, I'll have your baby for the day. So she looked after the baby for the day and, and off we went and we came back to Perth three months later. It was great. Wow. So you, how many children have you got? Two girls. Two girls. Yeah. So um, when, where in your career did the second child arrive? So I was working for, I had various part-time office roles um, when our eldest girl, Sammy, was a baby. And then um, I was offered a job with Hunter Resources. So the late Bruce Nesbitt um, offered me work there. Actually, it wasn't Bruce. I worked for Bruce. Um but it was another guy that worked there. And um, and they saw that I was holding down three part-time jobs and said, just come and work for us and have one job. And so that's what I did. And then um, a, a year into that role, I was pregnant with a second. And I said to John, hey, mate, your scholarship's running out. You're four years into your PhD. About time you got a real job. <laughs> so he, um, I think it was a, a, a hormonally induced screaming fit in the kitchen, I think. <laughs> poor, poor bastard. And um, so Megan Clark, who um, was with, with Western Mining then, she's the ex-director uh, of or CEO of CSIRO and now on the board of Rio. So Megan interviewed John and offered him a role in Leinster. And we said, we'll be there. So she offered him the role and um, off we went. So Courtney was, I think, eight weeks old when we moved up to. So that was a residential role? Basically. Yeah, residential role. And that's how I managed to stay in the business of being in the field as a geologist. So I worked as an underground mine geologist there. But if I hadn't have been residential, there was no way I could have done that. So they... There's a digression to take for a second there, which is about um, most of us grew up in residential roles and they are key formative parts of the friends that we have, the families mm. that we have. I met my wife in that scenario. And the support that you have as well in those yes. communities. Support is amazing. Yeah. And that is missing, obviously, largely now. I think um, we don't talk about how to maintain a career, and that's actually what we want to talk about today, is how do you maintain a career under the trials and tribulations of life? And residential was a key component of it. Well, absolutely. I mean, if, if we hadn't have gone residential, I certainly wouldn't have had the opportunities that I have now. I wouldn't have worked for Western Mining and been in that world-class learning environment that they provided. Um, and same as our daughter now. She's married, got a baby. She works in mining. She's a, a drilling logistics officer. And um, she lives residentially in Newman with her husband and two children. And she wouldn't be able to have a career because she was FIFO. She wouldn't have been able to maintain a career without without that. But I think what, um, you know, those residential roles for us back in the day, although we were separated enormously from our families because, of course, it was so much more expensive to, to have air travel and it was a 10-hour drive back to Perth. So you only got back to Perth once or That's twice right. a year yeah. and you didn't have Skype. So it was an STD phone call that was, you know, 50 cents a minute or whatever it used to cost to ring home and the pips used to go on the phone. It was, quick, hurry up, it's STD, <laughs> you know. So, um, so really that was what enabled, you know, me to, to stay in the sector and those and all those people that we had around us were our became our family our neighbors 
our workmates, and then those workmates are our industry peers today who are now leaders in their own right in the sector. We're getting close to the story about forming DigiRock, which is a pretty interesting one in its own right. Uh, but before I get there, I want to talk about health. Yes. And you went chest, through yeah. your own health crisis. Mm. When was that and what sort of impact it had on your career? So I, um, I've got Hashimoto's disease, which is an autoimmune um, disease of the thyroid. So my thyroid has been killed by my immune system. And that happened postpartum after our second child was born. So, And the symptoms didn't really knock me for a six until she was about almost two years old. And, you know, it was just I had just, I had uncoordination. I was spilling coffee down the front of me. My short-term memory went. Um, and I was really quite unwell. Um, and so I ended up, um, because country GPs back in the day didn't necessarily have all the training they have now, um, my GP just told me because I was suffering from fibromyalgia to go home and take some anti-inflammatories. And then, of course, my one of my close friends from high school is a dentist and I went to see her and she said, oh, Pete, I reckon you've got I reckon you've got hypothyroidism. You should go get your thyroid levels tested. So I went back to my GP, Dr. Scrag, was his his name in Leinster. And um, I said, oh, I think I need, um, I need to have my thyroid levels done. He said, called me back in two weeks and said, I need to talk to you about your thyroid levels. You're, um, you're just about dead, basically. <laughs> so I think my thyroid-stimulating hormones levels were through the roof. And he said, I'm really, really pleased. You're the first one I've ever diagnosed with, with hypothyroidism. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, yeah, I had to take a couple of weeks off work. You know, I was be 35 degrees outside and I'd have the heater on inside and I'd be just lying on the couch, comatose. Um, but eventually I got back to work Um but I, I just think you know, it's probably a familial and genetic link to it. But I think it's just the lifestyle that we lead when we push ourselves a bit too hard. Are you somebody who this is the logical consequence of think, your behaviour? I think so. I think, you know, when we push ourselves too hard, um, you know, we put our immune system kind of goes into, into collapse or overdrive. And that's probably what did it to me. And I think there's lots of A-type personalities that probably suffer from some sort of thyroid or autoimmune disorder. Or even, you know, there are a variety of ways it can manifest. Thyroid Abs- is just one example. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. So I suffer from a, a balance problem. And one of the things we want to talk about is balance. So you've had a health crisis, you're an A-type personality, and here you are successful. Tell us about how you balance time how do you balance time well there was a really interesting thing that i heard at a um i think it was a seroptimus lunch that one of our girls that worked for us once invited me to and janet holmes a court presented at it and she said anyone that tells you that they've got the perfect work-life balance is lying (laughs) and i thought you're right you're right because there is no perfect work-life balance. You know, you've, there are things that have got to give and you can't say yes to everything. And it did take a, a GP, a really um, excellent GP, to tell me once when um, uh, an endocrinologist I went and saw told me um, when I went in with another, you know, a, a post being medicated and about 15 years later going with another health crisis saying, I've gone crazy, <laughs> you know, help me. And he said, oh, you're just depressed here, have some antidepressants. I said, oh, I'm not bloody depressed. I don't want to be depressed. How come everyone's depressed these days? You know, so I went and I refused to pay his bill. And I said, I'm not paying for your service. You're useless. And um, I'm not paying for your next BMW. So I went and saw um, a GP up in the hills who was a locum up there. And she was cousin of someone that I knew from when I was a teenager. And she said, now tell me about your life, Peter. And I told her what I did. And she said, well, she said, I've got one thing to say to you. She said, you're not depressed, you're just fucking stupid. (laughs) (laughs) She says, I want you to go home and write 20 ways to say no, get fucked, I'm not doing it on a piece of paper. When someone says to you, can you be on the PNC? Can you do this? Can you do that? For the next year, I want you to say no. Best advice I ever had. So as an outsider, as a person who can't say no, you don't look like you say no. (laughs) <laughs> well, you know, I've got worse at saying no over the years, particularly this year. Um, Time but, to see the doctor again. I know. <laughs> like, well, actually, it's funny you should say that I went yesterday because <laughs> I'm failing to say no. 
And um, and then you start getting all this anxiety kicking you, thinking, God, I've got to do this and I've got to do that. How am I going to prepare for this? How am I going to prepare for that? So, you, you know, you, you kind of go through these recurrent episodes of right. I'm doing too much, it's time to slow down. Um, so, so, yeah, I think that if you're inherently someone that – I don't know if it's that we have FOMO, you know, fear of missing out, or whether we just, I mean, I just think the greatest way to experience life, well, what I said to one of our daughters once when, you know, she invited me to a school carnival and she said, you know, mum, come to my school carnival. Off I went to the high school sports carnival and she went in one event and I said, what a bloody waste of my day. I said, here I am, I've taken a day off work to come and watch you at the school carnival you know, you're 13, you're old enough to be responsible and all you do is one event so you can have the day off school. I said, in life, you're either a passenger or you're a driver. And I said, so if you want to keep being a passenger, keep just doing the shit that you're doing. But if you want to be a driver, then embrace things and, and participate. So she said, okay, the, the next day she came to me after thinking overnight, I said, okay, mum, I've decided next year for school carnival, I'm going to go in absolutely everything and I'm going to get champion girl. I said, oh, really? I said, well, you know, just be careful that, you know, you don't, you don't shoot too high. Um, but, you know, as a credit to her, bloody kid goes to the school carnival next year, goes in every event, has never done athletics in her life, breaks the, never thrown a discus in her life, breaks the school record for discus, um, wins virtually every event but bar a couple and takes out the school um, champion girl, you know, the champion girl for her age group. And I thought, oh, well, there you go, good advice. So I, I think that, you know, you really – you. You have to say yes to things in life because otherwise, well, not yes to everything, but if you've got to have a bit of a plan about where you want your life to take you and once you kind of know a rough idea about where you're going to, then when you're offered an opportunity, you can either say yes or no to it. And if it takes you away, leads you off on a path away from your goal, then you know immediately you can say no to it. But if you if it looks like it's going to take you in that right direction with just a, maybe a little bit of a bend in the road, well, you just say yes. You know, So I just think you've got to say yes to opportunities. So are you someone that is good at figuring out those opportunities or do you rely on kind of a support network around you or other people like your husband or family to kind of guide well, you? Well, I think they're two separate issues, you know, two separate things. Um, I fully rely on a support network. I rely on my husband, my mum and dad, um, my brother, you name it, um, my f- good friends. Um, I just think that we've all got to be, you know, we're all put on this earth to help each other and help each other be successful. And um, so that support network is really, really important. And I wouldn't be where I am today without that. You can't, no one exists, no man exists on an island by themselves, basically. Um, But then as far as opportunities go, um, taking opportunities is something that's really important and you need support to be able to take those opportunities. I mean, I could never, within the business that we have, I could never, as a parent of teenagers, gone and done field work in exploration if my parents hadn't helped and had the kids um, for a week, a month, basically. So yeah. it wouldn't have happened. So, so yeah, some of those opportunities you've got to have an immense amount of support for. So let's talk about DigiRock. Tell us a little bit about what is DigiRock and, and how you formed so DigiRock, so we're contract consultant exploration um, geologists. Um, we were living in Leinster and we moved, um, we'd been at, in Leinster for five years and Western mining was changing a lot during that time and you know, our vision was always that we would hopefully work overseas one day and that's one of the reasons we joined Western Mining because they had overseas opportunities. But a lot of those opportunities were, were shutting down um, and likewise a lot of um, opportunities in Australia were shutting down. It was a big time of change. No one knew what was going to happen with regards to the new native title legislation, how it was going to, oh, how yeah, it was going to impact fine. on exploration. So people were kind of, you know, crawling back into their snail shells and just waiting to see what happened. Um, so there was an opportunity for John to um, move into a new role in the Northern Territory with another company. And, you know, we always wanted to... to see the rest of Australia and work somewhere different in different terrains. So off we went. But at that time, um, John, the, the job was 50 k's out of town, out of Tennant Creek where we moved to. And we were living in Tennant Creek because um, there was no company housing out at the town of Warrigo around the mine site. So there was an opportunity for me to have a role there, but I had no, I hadn't established a support network in Tennant Creek. So I didn't feel that I could really take that role. And 
I was quite. We we just sold. I think AMP demutualised and Colonial Mutual, and you know we were we luckily decided to sell our shares on day of listing and had about twenty five grand in our pockets. Um, and so I'd always wanted to have a business of my own one day because I'd come from a long line of you know, orchardists and, you know, business people and, you know, I suppose way back miners in my gene pool. And so it was never anything frightening to me to go out and start a business. So we just went, well, that's it, start a business. So, and that was how I got my flexibility. So it meant that I could be at home with the kids, but also work and maintain my skills. And so DigiRock was born. So one of the things I think of DigiRock now is it's addressing a shortfall in our industry's development process. A very practical group based on fundamentals. Was that always part of the design or is this something that emerged? No, it's funny because um, when I when I decided to start up the business, the, the NT government had a bit of a, um, a small business mini sort of certificate course that they had for five days. They had people come up from Adelaide and down from Darwin to present to anyone who wanted to start a business in Tennant Creek, free of charge. So myself and a whole pile of other people, probably 50-50 blokes and women actually, um, we all went and did this course. And one of the, the things was how to write a business plan. So, you know, I went through and being the diligent student I'd now become, wrote my dis- business plan about, you know, what DigiRock was. And, you know, I wrote sort of into five years what was going to happen that, you know, John would join the business one day, Um but really, initially, it was for me to maintain my skills and not lose the skills that I already had um, and to give me the flexibility that I needed to be able to balance the kids with work. So I, I don't think I, I never really visualised what it would be today. But I think those um, those inherent things that you learn at West, learned at Western Mining around training and making people be the best people they can be and mentoring is was a fundamental that stuck with me through the business. So do you think that the core skill development is something that big companies still look after or that our industry still looks after? Look, I don't think we do it as well as we used to. I think it's a lot harder now. Um, There's a lot more pressure from shareholders to be more lean and perhaps the value isn't put on the training that it used to be. And there's... There are different areas of training. Of course, you know, safety is one of the biggest things these days. You know, it's all done around risk. So, you know, you've got the, I suppose you've got a a lot of big companies have got to weigh the risk of someone potentially being catastrophically injured in the field or finding their next mine. So when you're balancing where the money's going to go, a lot of that's got to go into getting people work ready and safe. Um, that's a really important yeah, that's moral right. obligation. Aversion, aversion, yeah, yeah, that's a really important moral obligation we all have. But um, I think that because we have such high turnover rates now in industry as well, people are a lot more mobile. People with maybe companies are failing to put that money into the the fundamental technical training that that needs to be to be done. So I guess they, um, you know, one school of thought is that a lot of major companies don't see the return on investment in, um, you know, putting development into their employees. So how do you guys justify that in DigiRock? Well, I suppose we try and employ the exploration managers and leaders of the future. That's who we're looking for when we interview. And we know that the better they are now, that the better geologists we make them now, the better they are going to be in the future. And eventually they're going to outgrow our company. They're going to move on. So one day they're going to be um, our peers, our clients. Um, so the better we can make them, the more discoveries that are made. And it sustains us having work in the sector, I suppose. It's it's self-perpetuating. I can see the Western mining influence on your values, but the value component I see in DigiRock now how do you manage to maintain that when, by definition, your people work for somebody else? We very much recruit to our values. So when we advertise and when we interview, questions are asked around our values. And so when we when we sort of select someone to interview, we've got to see that there's an alignment with our values from the outset. There's got to be something special in the person that we interview. Um, and then 
That the values are threaded through our professional development reviews annually, our feedback loops that we have from our clients, and the feedback loops we have from our staff. Because we want our clients to share similar values as well. We don't want to work for clients that don't value family and um, don't value quality and and things like that. We want we want people to be doing things for the right reasons. Um, so certainly that value of family is the hardest to instill when you've got people working sort of remotely from your organisation and you're not their line manager. So we try and organise regular catch-ups. We try and make sure we're talking to people on the phone, encouraging them to come into the office. You know, if someone has a baby, we're always excited for them and we send them a, you know, a gift, a baby gift. Or um, if there's a birthday, we send people a birthday card because they're part of our, our Digirock family. They have to, those important milestones in their life are, milestones for us as well so we need to celebrate it with them how have you managed to balance your career with your husband who's a reputable geologist in his own right and bring up a family and is that something that you look to instill in the people you hire oh absolutely um i suppose you know i've always been very fortunate um in that either my employers chose me or i chose them i don't quite know which way around it went um but my first employer um the main one that I had was through university and um, it was Pinnacle Travel and Tours. And I had been in Japan for a year and I spoke Japanese. And so I was kind of the domestic travel consultant part-time while I studied part-time in my first year at university. And I went all the way through till I finished university and worked there for the first year until what first two years until I went to Leinster. And when I had Marilyn Reedhead was a lady and Bob, um, she was a station, they were off the station in the uh, Murchison. Amazing people that they're both, all their daughters, their sons-in-law all worked in the business and her, both her and her husband worked. They had all had their strengths and they all worked to their strengths. And when Sammy was born, um, Marilyn said to me, can you come back and work on a Sunday for us? And, um, you know, when the, the, the tours go out, can you meet and greet everybody and make sure you're there to translate the Japanese and everything? And um, I said, oh, look, what am I going to do with Sammy? John's, you know, got to get his PhD done. And she'd say, oh, just bring her into the office. She'll be fine. And so I used to do that. And her daughter, who was probably, uh, I don't know, about 18 or 17 at the time, and she was still at school because she was in a school uniform, I remember. Um, but she used to just look after Sammy. So if a client came in the door, Jen would just, um, not Jen, um, next one down. Jen, I think it was, used to take her out the back and um, take Sammy out the back and in the baby capsule and rock her and keep her happy until the client had gone. So so that was, I learnt from a very young age that there are ways, there's more than one way to skin a cat, there are ways that you can balance having children and having and working, you know. And so I suppose I used to think, well, if it can be done there, it can be done anywhere. And, you know, one of the things I think... Um, you know, I suppose I've probably worked by the philosophy, ask for forgiveness rather than ask for permission. <laughs> and I remember um, one of our, our youngest daughter, Courtney, had chicken pox this one time and I had to get an oil reserve out. And I thought, Jesus, she's got chicken pox. What am I going to do? John's got to go to work. I've got to go to work. She can't go to daycare. I thought, oh, well, bugger it. I'll just put her in the car. And she would have been about four. And I'll just sit her in the in my office behind the door and hopefully no one even noticed she's there. <laughs> so she had a little little foam pull-out lounge behind the door and, you know, she had a little snack box and a little drinks there and she was quite happy. She was beyond the contagious stage, but she wasn't allowed to go to school. So, But then the mine manager wanted to come in and talk to me about something and he pushed, knocked on my door and pushed my door open. I went, oh, hang on, Max. So don't push too hard. He said, why, what's wrong? I said, child with chicken pox behind door, do not enter. He went, oh, okay. Closed the door and walked off <laughs> and never a word was said. So, so yeah, so I was really lucky that I was surrounded by really good people that just went, oh, well, it's happened. It's successful. Let's not stress about it. So both Armand and I have partners who are geologists and so this is a conversation that comes up between us as to how we balance careers between ourselves and our partners how do you and john sort that out or how has that been sorted out in you in your career well look i think you know at first when i graduated you know john had invested far more time into his career than me because he started his you know he'd done honors and he'd done started his PhD. Sadly, when I had my dummy spit, <laughs> he had to stop his PhD and never actually got it written up. Um, so I felt that John had invested far more in his career than I had and that he 
he deserved to take the first opportunity. And I knew there'd be an opportunity for me as well because, you know, I, I would I would find one or make one. So it was always almost non-verbal. We just both by mutual consent agreed to stuff. It always just felt natural. And there have been, you know, other times that um, – I mean, I don't even think that, you know, really either of us has had to take a back seat. There's always been another opportunity that we've been able to figure out to make it work. So it's just done by consent, I suppose, but you don't even know you're doing it half the time. Like you don't even know you're compromising. And I think that's the beauty about a good relationship is that you don't know you're compromising, you know, and you just say, oh, well, and it's like sharing the car, you know. What are you up to today? I've got to do this, got to do that. Oh, well, you can't have the car because I've got to go here and I want to, don't want to take the tray back because it's really hard to reverse in the city. So you figure out, you know, what you're going to do about cars, the same way you do with kids, you know. It's it's pretty easy to sort out. It, the, the solution becomes pretty obvious, I think. So do you think you've had to make any sacrifices along the way that now when you look back? Well, look, I mean, I well, John and I had planned when we finished um, – uni and he finished his PhD, that I'd worked for two years when I got my degree. And then we'd go, we'd travel around the world for a year or two. And, you know, we'd start off in South America and we'd use his US citizenship and we'd live in the States for a while and work in the States and see the geology there. And we just work our way around the globe. And of course, you know, you get up the duff when you're in, in April of your final year of university and that kind of puts a kibosh on, on those plans. But we never felt like we missed out, you know. We wouldn't change it for the world. And, you know, I would have loved to have started out in exploration rather than mining. Um, but being a mine geologist changed my whole perspective. It gave me a full picture of the of the um, the business of mining and, you know, exploration from, you know, from cradle to grave, I suppose. So I certainly, although I wanted to be an exploration geologist, that mine experience was so valuable to my career development. So I don't feel that I really missed out on that much. I did, I did bemoan when we first got to Leinster and I couldn't get a job. And I remember ringing John Ronsky saying, John, what have I done with my life? You know, I'm in, stuck in Leinster and no one will give me a bloody job. They want an honours degree and I've only got a BSc and, you know, I'm not qualified enough to be a geologist of Western Mining. And he said, oh, well, Pete, you know, in his, in his very steady, measured way, he said, well, you know, maybe you should go back and do a master's or something if you can't get work. I thought, oh, that's a really good idea. Great advice, John. Of course, I applied for the master's course and they wouldn't let me in because I didn't have a good enough academic grade. But um, but it was people like John Ronsky who who really kept my chin up and always provided good mentoring advice. I had wonderful people around me that always were good friends and good mentors. So that's one of the things that I miss. The Western, marfing, the Western mining mafia yeah. is still, well, it's still important to my career now. It's one of these things, the support network that's around you. I uh, wonder how modern company people who are turning over so often are going to go. I guess you'll have your own Digirock family and yes. that will be everywhere. Maybe that'll be a mafia in the future. Well, I, I really hope so, you know, because it's the model was, you know, the Digirock model was kind of predicated on resource service group as well because that was my first lot of VAC work I had. And so the business that Rick Yates and Julian Barnes built was – phenomenal you know really inclusive um we were 50 50 guys and girls back in 1988 it was a really egalitarian time back then wow. you know i i never noticed that i was a girl in the mining industry you know and it really wasn't until people start asking you about it you go oh shit yeah <laughs> i am a girl in the in a <laughs> men's industry i i kind of forget about that because i only ever felt a geologist i was never discriminated against i mean maybe there were some unconscious biases there in the past but I never perceived them. You know, if I look, reflect on my career, perhaps there were. Um, but me being the A-type personality that I am, if I ever saw an injustice I done to me, I'd just <laughs> I'd thump my hand on the on the on my fist on the desk and say, "Well, that's not me. It's not good enough for me. That's not that's not the solution. I want something different." You know, so to my bosses and everything, and I'm sure I, I made a few of my bosses squirm because I wasn't the meek, mild you know, graduate that I probably should have been. I was always very outspoken and um, probably tend to shoot from the hip a bit too much and it gets me into trouble. Yeah. So do you ever think like you being a female in mining has been a um, a detriment in your career at all? No, never, never. At, if anything, I think, you know, you stick out like 
dog's balls because you're you're a female, you know. And people were, and also my name's a bit unusual. It's Peter Libby, so you know, is it a male? Is it a female? Is it a? Has, have I got the name the right way round? So my oh. name, yeah, <laughs> Libby Peter, Libby Peter yeah. you know. And everyone calls John Peter and me Libby, and they go, oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> Even people have known us for thirty years do the same thing. Um, so I think that. Um, if anything, it's been a positive thing because, you know, when you're working with a drilling crew, I mean, I've had some drillers that have been a little bit um, difficult, but I just gave it back as good as I got. And by the end of the day, you know, we'd have the conversation in the wedding, maybe we should start again and reintroduce ourselves and because I knew I was going to back down. So, yeah, I've had a little bit of that. But at the end of the day, um, I just think being a female meant that the drillers actually didn't feel like they were, I didn't, it wasn't an ego they had to compete with. So they were actually far, probably far more giving with their information and their teachings that they could. So I learned a lot about drilling. I was really, really lucky and um, was taught a lot by the drilling crews. And I've got, I love drilling. I love the mechanics of it and how it works. And my eldest daughter also has the same passion as well because she started in the industry about the same age I did. So one of the final things we want to talk about is the cyclic nature of our industry. It's clearly affected your ability to get a job in the first place. It affects pretty much everyone's career. And you run a business that's hyper-exaggerated hyper because of the nature of the business. How do you build midterm plans when that cycle affects you probably first? Yeah, look, we certainly, expiration is certainly the canary in the coal mine for our sector. And we tend to feel any downturn two years before the mining space does. And we also feel the uplift two years before. So we're kind of the, the, the barometer for the sector. Um, you know, those seven to 10 year cycles are things that we can't change. You know, we just have to know that they exist. And as surely as it's going to go up, it's going to go down again. And as sure as it goes down, it's going to come up. So we just have to basically become the most efficient business you can be to, to get through those times. And I suppose the nature of contract work is that people that come into the business understand that. I think the biggest thing for us is understanding, oh, sorry, to go back to my point about the cyclical nature, just got to make sure you don't carry a lot of capital debt. You've got to make sure that you've got as little debt as possible that you've got to service. And you've got to make sure you run a business that's, you know, as cash flow positive as possible. And you don't have to repay banks and you don't have high outgoings, the fixed overheads, just to make sure that you can, I suppose, um, recession-proof yourself or, you know, downturn-proof yourself. But then the big thing for a company like ours is the seasonality of expiration because, of course, you know, um, everything goes crazy around November, everyone trying to finish everything up in the field seasons. And then by mid-December, you've got half the people working that were working on the 30th of November. And by January, you've got half the people again working and then by February, you've got maybe one person extra working. And then March, it slowly picks up and then picks up again to April, May, then June, July, it plateaus and sometimes even drops. Um, and then it starts picking up and crescendoing back up to November. So you almost need double the people, probably need three or four times the people in November to what you need in January. So that's a really hard thing, but that's an opportunity in itself. Because that means that over that Christmas period when we want to spend time with family and a lot of our grads that have joined us over the years are from the Northern Hemisphere. So it means that they can go home and spend time with family and make sure they stay connected to their family in that off season and then come back. So so the seasonality is our biggest challenge, I think. And then as long as we don't have high levels of debt and high level of fixed overheads um, in our business, then we can ride that that downturn in the in the seven to ten year cycle so you started your own business it's never been easier to start your own business than right now you can do it online what advice would you give your staff or anybody our listeners on future proofing your career to deal with cycles what advice well number one is being made redundant or you know having a downturn is in itself can be an opportunity so you know, in, when John was made redundant in 2002 and we just both worked part-time out of DigiRock because that was before we started employing staff. We started employing staff in 2005. We thought, well, we'll just take every school holidays with the kids and just enjoy our life. And this is a, this is a, a gifted opportunity on a platter where you get a redundancy 
and you can, you know, we could pay off your house and that would future proof, proof you. But, you know, we'd never had a, we'd never had time to enjoy our family. We'd always been working to survive. So it was our first opportunity to actually just be a family and go, bugger it, let's go down to, let's go down to Margaret River for the weekend and go camping. I mean, certainly it was done on a shoestring and, you know, camper trailer and, and free campsites all the way around the South Coast every time we went on holidays. But um, I remember my mum saying to me, you know, God, you, you live in a hundred square metre house and you've got the kids and you always have extra kids come and live with you and your girls have to share a bedroom and you can't swing a cat, you've got one bathroom. You know, don't you think you need to live in, you know, you should be working full time and having a bigger house? I went, oh, yeah, man, maybe one day. <laughs> but everything's fine as it is at the moment. So you've got to be careful that you don't let material things drive you and that, I mean, at the end of the day, the reason we work is about our families and providing a good future for our children, staying healthy, and if we can enjoy our jobs at the same time, then we've hit the jackpot. So that's that's it, really. So I see you everywhere now. You really are front and centre in giving back to the industry. Is that sounds that sounds like it's part of your personality? Is that true? Are you giving back? Is that deliberate? Yeah, well, I, I don't know. You don't even notice that you're giving back because it's just it gives it gives me an inordinate amount of pleasure to feel that I'm helping somebody. You know, I've been I've been pretty privileged through my life to have learnt what I've learnt and have the opportunities that I've had. And once you have those skill sets, then I think it's beholden upon you to share them with people and to make sure that other people get the same opportunities. Um, you know, I, I really. Although when I grew up on the orchard as a young kid, you know, we were bloody poor. You know, we ate offal and we did all that stuff. And you know, I remember my mum telling me that she felt so bad because she didn't have 20 cents to buy me a pair of baby stockings and stuff to keep me warm in the winter. And it's like, well, but we were happy. And um, so you can come from very humble beginnings. And, you know, we had, I'd come from a family that had set up, an, you know, an orchard up in the hills and they'd done reasonably well we had a they had a market garden extended family had a market garden in the southwest you know started in the early 1900s but um in the 19 the crash of the 1920s my great grandfather and his brother-in-law invested in a big department store in perth and the, the family fortunes and of course uh, the crash of the 1920s came and they did their dough and the department store went out of business so all that money that our family had had worked hard for when they first came out from the uk um was all gone so we were back living hand to mouth with this big orchard and um yeah so from very humble beginnings but my great-grandfather no matter what he still took during the war he still took apples and donated fruit to parkville children's home because that was around the corner from us um all of my, my grandfather my father's been in lions my mum's always done stuff to help people so i just think it's in your genetics and and i think that it's that that fourth level of of um, of reward you get in your life. You know, there are certain things you need to be to feel whole as a person, and you know, there are some very basic things that you need in life. You need food, shelter. You know, you need that sort of stability, good health, and then the more you have, you know, you get yourself a good job, and then that fourth thing is the thing that you're able to do once you have all those things lined up that you're able to give back, and that's that's that. I don't know whether it's a, a you know a spiritual thing that's that level of enlightenment that you get from it, but I I get a really lovely sense of reward and um, I suppose it must be endorphins from it. So it's fair to say that you believe in the concept of like pay it forward because yeah, absolutely of the, the help that you've got to your career. Absolutely, I wouldn't be there if people hadn't um, have thought that um, hadn't given me the opportunities and taken a chance on me. And so I think everybody deserves that in life that. You know, everyone's, you know, most people are good people and deserve, and everyone has their talent and everyone deserves to find that talent and be given the opportunity to, to make the most of it. Because I think, um, like, having dealt with DigiRock people, I think that's something you fostered in your company as well, that I think that concept that you give something to your employees so they give something back as well. Look, our, I mean, look, I like all the people that work for us. And I think that's one of the most important things. You've got to like them and have a connection with them. And so, um, so, and because we recruit for culture, they're not just a bunch of management wanky words, you know, they're, they're actually part of the way we operate our business. They're the way we make decisions. And so the people that join our business have the same set of values and um, they care about community. They, a lot of, so most 
virtually every person that comes and works at DigiRock has volunteered in some shape or form in their life. And that's one of our key recruitment criteria. They have got to have given back somewhere. So no volunteer work, no interview. I, I just think that, you know, people that don't put their hobbies on a piece of paper, you know, how can you differentiate yourself from Joe Bloggs next to you, or Joe or Janet Bloggs next to you, um, who's got exactly the same looking CV from exactly the same university, and how, how can you tell that they're, they're different? So you've got to put, the only way to personalise your CV is to put something of yourself in it. So You've, I agree. Communicate that you're a person. Yeah. And when you write your bloody cover letter, don't say, I'm conscientious, hardworking, trustworthy. <laughs> Demonstrate it. Tell me why you're conscientious. Tell me why you're trustworthy. Tell me why you're intelligent. You know, just don't tell me you are because I'm not going to believe you. Because, <laughs> uh, I mean, I guess I find that really interesting because, you, you know, like the HR world that we sometimes live in kind of says that, yeah, experience is more like technical experience, whatever experience is more important than any of these other intrinsic characteristics of people. I mean, this conversation goes completely opposite to that. Oh, absolutely. You, I mean, I've read one business or management leadership book in my life. Can't remember the name, for the life of me, the name of it. But it was right bums in seats. That was the that was the that was the main message. Was you put those right bums in seats because trying to prize the wrong bums out of those seats is pretty bloody hard, and um, and so you've got to recruit for the things that matter to your business. And once you get, you can have someone who doesn't have the technical skill set, even if someone doesn't have the right mineral um, exploration geology units in their, you know, in their undergraduate degree, doesn't mean they're not going to be a good mineral explorer. It just means that they might need to do some more training. They might need to go back and do a master's in mineral exploration at some stage. It doesn't mean that they're not going to be good as long as they've got all those other things that are about customer service. You know, Because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what you do, whether you're a contractor or you work in, on staff for someone, you are providing a service to somebody. You're providing a service to a metallurgist, to an engineer, to an accountant. So we're all service providers. And I think the sooner people realise that, we are all in the business of customer service. The better and the more enjoyment we will get out of our careers and the jobs that we do, and the better we'll be able to perform our jobs. That's really cool. I mean, I think one of the things that I really like when I heard career advice I was given is that you, everyone should go work like six months or a year in a retail customer service kind of job because I think you then realize how to deal with people, Absolutely. what matters, all that stuff. I am. Um, my first job was at McDonald's um, when McDonald's first came to Australia came to WA I worked at McDonald's Belmont and of course McDonald's Belmont Belmont hasn't changed since I was a kid so <laughs> it was so I went it's to a pretty rough assignment really yeah, it was a pretty rough assignment but it was a great assignment because I mean that was the that's where I grew up after I left the orchard and mum and dad traveled around Australia for a year off we went to to live in Belmont because that was all they could afford where they could afford to buy um, and so I was brought up, you know, everyone in where I was brought up was you either wanted to become a bikey or <laughs> a bikey's girlfriend. So, <laughs> so you know, us that had a passion for, um, and I don't, that's not a, that's a little bit of an over-exaggeration, but it's by <laughs> no stretch of the imagine a lie. Um, a lot of the kids that I grew up with actually ended up in bike in, in, as bikies. So, um, so it's not, a, it's by no means a lie. Um, but... The training I got at McDonald's was all around customer service. We had challenges of, you know, I remember one thing, we had to deliver food to the client within two minutes or they got their meal for free. Um, we had, you know, you had to open up the store and get all the machines organised, you know, put together the ice cream and the milkshake machine. And if you got the O-rings in the round the wrong way or, you know, uh, all the Fluid would leak all over. All the milk would be over the floor in the morning, and so you, there were some challenges. and And the best thing that I learned at McDonald's was, "Would you like fries with that?" <laughs> and I always remind our staff, <laughs> always subtly remind our clients, "Would they like fries with that?" Because often people don't know they want something until they realise what they're missing out on. That's so, cold. yeah. That's <laughs> so yeah, it's very very important, and. One of the things that we look for when we recruit people is that people have worked in customer service, that they've worked in a restaurant, um, you know, they've had to deal with difficult people that don't like the food or have a complaint because there will always be complaints and problems to solve and you've got to have been put into that difficult situation to know how to find your way around it. And also, you know, I don't want to employ kids that have never worked, that don't know what it's like to work. 
go somewhere, go and work for somebody oh, else. That's a good point. Yeah. You know, I, I need young young graduates that know what it's like to have a job and know what it's like to, to get up in the morning, go to work and deliver. Because um I don't want us to be the first people that they figure out that they don't wanna they don't like working. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know? So it's important. So just a couple more things to finish up. One of the questions we ask all our guests is what idea inside exploration on in the mining industry can be concept or behaviour needs to die? Something that we currently do that you would like to stop? I would like to see that um, we're, we're putting... Our drillers no longer are being paid by the metre, that they're being paid by the quality of their work. And that's not the drilling company's fault, that's the client's fault because... Clients don't quite know how to value a contract on quality, so we still we don't quite know how to do that yet. And um, and I want to see that our drilling that our drilling contractors in particular aren't screwed to the ground constantly, because they are the lifeblood of our industry. And if we, you know, people say, "Oh, geez, I just got this really great rate on this drilling contract. Don't know how these guys can make a quid." Well, they're not making a quid. They they could sit on the beach and lose money, um, less money than working for some of these people that say that they screwed their drilling contractors into the ground. But these drilling contractors are the lifeblood of our industry and they're struggling to find drillers and offsiders because they cannot pay them the money that they need to or offer them the conditions. So they have to have these longer work cycles. So, I mean, some drilling companies still have to have six and one rosters. And it was like that back in 1988. Oh, well, mind you, some of them were doing 360 three days and one day off back in 1988. But, you know, the six-in-one roster is is old school and we should be paying our, I suppose, filling our contracts and paying a reasonable amount for our contracts so we don't have to make people work six-in-one anymore and that that the productivity isn't screwed down, it's the quality we're looking for. And if we go to that quality basis, I think we'll change the whole industry and our safety outcomes, our retention rates, um, and we'll we'll get better quality drilling um, results as well. I mean, there's that concept that, you know, the race to the bottom, no one's going to win, really. Absolutely. Absolutely. Never. No one ever wins the race to the bottom. Yeah. Last question related to that one, which is around flexibility in our industry. Is it your own personal job to manage your flexibility and your career or the balance? Is it your company's job? Is it something that everybody should be concerned about as to how we maintain the rage and build towards the future? There's an interesting thing about fault and and responsibility going around on the internet. And so whilst it might be your company's fault that you don't have flexibility, it's your responsibility to make sure you have it. So, you know, we need to vote with our feet and, and push back and go and work for the companies that provide that flexibility. And that's not just for women in the workforce, that's for our men. I mean, women can't be equally represented in the the workforce until our men have given the flexibility as well. Because without that flexibility, you both can't have a career. So, And so I think that our men are the forgotten part of the equation and that there's not enough flexibility afforded our men. Um, And, and yeah, it's just... It's, it's a natural, I mean, for me, it's logical that men and women should have the same flexibility. But sadly, men aren't afforded the same flexible opportunities and society doesn't allow our men to because there's still a very, very old school societal approach that if a bloke says, I'm going to pick up the kids from daycare, I've got to leave two hours earlier, or the kid's sick, one of the kids is sick, I've got to go home and get them, why can't your wife do that? That's what his peers are telling him, his male peers. I mean, that's just ridiculous. I, just, I can't believe that people still say that, but they do, you know. And so that, that's got to change. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Peter, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's been great. In neuroscience, there's a well-understood concept called brain plasticity, Effectively, it refers to the brain's ability to change throughout an individual's life. Previously, we'd always assumed that the brain develops during a critical period and then stays static throughout the rest of a person's life. There are many scales at which you can observe the effect of this plasticity. 
One of the simplest and probably most evident would be the survival of certain species. It is not the strongest species that survive, nor the most intelligent, but the ones that are most responsive to change. Talking to Peter, he realized pretty quickly that she's innately adaptable, or in her words, she just gets on with things and focuses on being the driver rather than the passenger in life. So what if to survive in this industry, the most important thing is adaptability. We are continuously asking companies to change, but the change is not about things, it's about people. Maybe it's time we think about being more adaptable as well. So the question is, how plastic is your mindset? Exploration Radio is brought to you by Steve in the Mod. Our producer and all-round go-to guy is Dan Hershowitz. This podcast is recorded at the Perth Music House. If you'd like to know more about Exploration Radio, check us out on explorationradio.com. Or you can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn. And as always, if you like this podcast, please review us on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Until next time, let's keep exploring.